you got to go to Fall Retreat, and that's okay. We want each and every one of you to know we're glad you're here. So welcome to Crew. We're glad you're here. Um, tonight, we're going to continue our series. But before I even go there, I want to ask a question. Have you ever heard of Oshi Hill? Now, if you were here a couple years ago, you may have heard me share some of her stories. Most of you probably don't know who she is. But in 1913, Oshi Hill was a young 17-year-old girl who lived in rural western Kentucky. And through the ministry of a local church, Oshi put her faith in Jesus to rescue her from her sins. And upon hearing the news, her father told her she wasn't allowed to go down to that church anymore or be with those people. And if she did, if she went back down there, she couldn't come home again. So 17-year-old Oshi, a new believer, had a decision to make. Would she die to Jesus and her church for the sake of her family and her security? Or would she die to her family and her security for the sake of Jesus? What would you do? How about in the smaller decisions of life? Like how you invest your time. Do your relationships, your desires, your successes win out? Or do you die to yourself for Jesus and his gospel? When you look at your life, is it about you with maybe a little Jesus thrown in for good measure? Or is it about Jesus? Let me pray. Father God, we pray that you tonight will have your way. Fill this place with your spirit, Lord. Thank you for each and every one of us that you've brought here tonight. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us minds to hear, eyes to see. Help us to understand you and draw us near, Lord God. Show us yourself. Allow us to worship and give you our all for the sake of your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, tonight we're going to conclude our talk series, Who Do You Say That I Am? By looking at an account in Mark where Jesus asked his disciples this very question. It's in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. So you guys can pull that out as you get to it. But the reality is now, as then, there are lots of opinions on who Jesus is, right? Have you ever asked your friends who do they think Jesus is? I find people's answers interesting. Our video showed some opinions, and we had another video a few weeks ago that showed some other opinions of Ball Staters. You know, some people think Jesus is a prophet, some a carpenter, some a myth, some God. Some think Jesus is a good teacher, or even that he's just the zero point in our calendar. And some people, they just think, consider Jesus irrelevant. Well, over the past six weeks, we have endeavored to let Jesus speak for himself to look at the historical accounts of his life as recorded by Mark and discover who Jesus showed himself to be. So we looked at one of the first times Jesus taught in a synagogue where he was interrupted by a demon-possessed man. And we learned that Jesus has authority to teach and even demons obey him. Then we looked at how a group of men tore through a roof to lower their paralytic friend down in front of Jesus. And we learned that Jesus had the authority to forgive sin and heal sickness. And we heard about how religious leaders confronted Jesus, accusing his disciples of breaking God's law. 
and we learned Jesus has authority over religion and rule. And we saw Jesus asleep in the stern of a boat as a great windstorm develops. The waves threaten to sink the boat, and the disciples wake Jesus out of fear and desperation. Jesus calms the waves and the wind with a word and demonstrates his authority over nature to bring peace in the midst of fear and chaos. And last week we learned Jesus healed an ostracized woman from 12 years of hemorrhaging, and then restored life to a dead 12-year-old girl, revealing Jesus has authority over death itself. These amazing, impossible actions by Jesus caused the crowds and even the disciples to ask themselves, who is this? Who is this? And our hope is that you too are asking this question. Well, tonight we're going to look at the passage in Mark 8 where Jesus answers or addresses the question that's on everybody's mind. So Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So they're walking down the road, right? Because that's how they got around. They're going from one place to another place. And people are following Jesus. And he's teaching them along the way. And he decides to ask his disciples a question. Who do people say that I am? Jesus knows they've been talking about this. They're wondering. So he wants to hear what they're thinking. And there's lots of opinions going around, right? Some people think he's John the Baptist, who was a a prophet who had just been killed by the local government. Some people say Elijah, who was a prophet from hundreds of years ago, who was supposed to come back. Some people think he's another prophet. Jesus then narrows in on their hearts, and he asks the question we've been asking. Who do you say that I am? Peter answers, you are the Christ. He got it. He figured it out. Jesus is the Christ. The Christ, the Messiah, it means anointed one. He is God's promised deliverer who's going to bring an end to sickness and pain, sin and oppression. Then Jesus charged them to tell no one. Picking up in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said this plainly. Jesus isn't speaking in parables here. No, this is too important. Jesus wants them to know what's to come. Jesus will suffer and die. This blows the disciples away. We'll get to their reaction in a minute, but this is the first time in history anyone had equated the Old Testament passages of a suffering servant with the passages of the Messiah, the Christ. Everyone knew, so they thought, 
The Christ would come as the victorious king. He would rout the oppressors and establish his kingdom and reign forever, establishing justice. Jesus says, no. My victory does not come through conquest. My victory comes through suffering, rejection, and death. Jesus teaches he, the Son of Man, must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed. It is imperative. The only way to defeat sin, the only way to defeat death, is to submit himself to its full consequences, to satisfy justice. And after three days, rise from the dead. He would be, must be, victorious over sin and death. He must rise from the dead. You see, Jesus is more than they think. He's not just Christ as they know it. He's the Son of Man. He is Christ the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D. Lord. Yahweh. God. He has the authority to teach, the authority over demons, authority over sickness, authority over sin, authority to forgive, authority over religion, authority over creation, authority over fear, authority over death. Jesus has authority as Christ the Lord. So how do the disciples react to this idea of Christ's suffering and death? Let's pick up verse 32. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Woo! The language is strong. The word Mark uses for rebuke here is the same word used to describe Jesus' rebuke of the demons. Peter is outraged. Jesus would even suggest the suffering and dying. No, Jesus is the Christ. He must be victorious. He must conquer. He must reign in power. And Peter lets his preconceived idea... Understanding reality that he and every Jewish person believes since they sat on their papa's knee. And he let this cause him to reject Jesus' authority. Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Can you picture this? Jesus is walking down the road with his disciples. He stops walking. He turns around. He looks at his disciples. And he rebukes, same word, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Peter's rejection of Jesus' teaching is nothing short of demonic. It is imperative that everyone knows it. And he continues, You are not setting your things on the mind, your mind on the things of God, but of man. Peter blew it. He had set his mind on all that would be true of Jesus as the Christ. His victory, deliverance from Roman occupation. We can only imagine, but Jesus said he set his mind on the things of man. He stopped listening to Jesus. His own agenda now reigned supreme in his heart and not God's. We do that too, don't we? We set our mind on the things of man and reject Jesus' authority. We run after what we want. 
You know, some of us truly don't know who God is. So he has no influence on our, on our lives. But some of us do. But we choose to reject what we've been taught. And we set our mind on what we want. We fashion our lives around our own agenda. The things of man. And it dominates our life. As we set our mind on our own preferences and desires, we make God out to be whatever fits best. There's a researcher named Christian Smith. He's the associate chair of sociology at the University of North Carolina. He directed the National Study for Youth and Religion. It was funded by the Lilly Endowment. Well, he found through his study of teenagers all over the country that most U.S. teenagers could be, beliefs could be summarized by the following. One, they believe a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over humans on earth. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. If the extensive research by Smith and his team is accurate, this is what the majority of your classmates believe. Perhaps it's what you believe. The problem is, this is not what God has revealed about himself. But this is what happens when our beliefs are shaped by pursuing what we want, and we reject Jesus' authority. So what does Jesus do? Let's pick our story up in verse 34. In calling the crowd to himself with his disciples, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus calls the crowd to gather around, right? He wants everyone to hear this. All that are walking with him, so everyone can hear what he has to say. And Jesus tells them they need to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. First, they need to deny themselves. He's not saying here to give up cheesecake and Netflix. He's saying they need to deny their own self. David Garland put it, to deny the self and all self-promoting ambitions. And to say no to the I who would enslave them. And yes to God who leads them to life. To follow God is the direct opposite of Peter's inclination and ours is to make life fully and totally about God. Second, they're to take up their cross. And whatever you think of when you hear that term, it's probably far removed from the experiential reality of those walking with Jesus. The cross was an instrument of suffering and death. 
They lived in a world where those who rebelled were tortured. They carried their cross to the execution site and they endured an excruciating death hanging by nails on a cross. And when Jesus tells them to take up their cross, he's not just saying to us we have to just deal with life's inconveniences and hardships. No. He's calling us to suffer and die. And third, Jesus says, follow me. He only asks us to do what he said he's already going to do. The Son of Man must suffer, must be rejected, be killed, and rise again. And we are to follow him. In his discussion on this passage, Garland says, Discipleship is not a part-time volunteer work that one does as an extracurricular activity. Now, you might see crew that way, right? It's kind of an extracurricular activity. But discipleship, following God, no. It demands our whole self. Truth is, many of us will reject this call. We seek, right, to live for ourselves, our agenda, our opportunities, our needs and desires, a career, a spouse, accolades, intimacy, legacy, to be happy and feel good about life. I've made that choice. I suspect many of you have too. A friend of mine shared with me, he recently got mad at another friend while they were playing basketball. Why? Because his friend was playing in such a way that he's causing them to lose. And my friend was so caught up in winning his own agenda that he hated his brother. I've done that. Jesus calls us to die, and yet I emotionally kill other people just to get what I want. We seek to preserve life, and we deny Christ when his authority threatens our desires. But true life, however, is found in worship and obedience of Christ as Lord. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will find it. Excuse me. But how? Right? How do we get there? Because the reality is serving my own agenda can dominate me. By faith. We must trust in the one who's done it perfectly. Jesus perfectly lived for God on this earth. He was tempted in every way, just like us, yet without sin. In the greatest struggles of his life, he told the Father, Not my will, but yours be done. He was then rejected by the religious leaders and his countrymen and his closest friends and killed. And he bore the cost of our self-absorption, our evil. Then as he proclaimed after three days, Jesus rose again. He conquered evil. Not through exerting power over his enemies, but through submitting and enduring the fullness of evil. (laughs) What great love. Oh, how he's loved us. Our hope is not in getting it right. Our hope is him. Our hope is in him. If we place our faith in his perfection, his death on our behalf, and his resurrection, we get life. 
He saves our soul. You see, Jesus laid down every moment of his life for us. He fully denied himself, even beyond the point of death. He loved us. And there's no greater love than this, than one lay down one's life for one's friends. And our response is to trust in his provision and worship. Jesus is worthy. Our response is to trust in his provision and obey. Jesus is Christ the Lord. We do this not out of sheer willpower, right? I've tried that. It don't work. I'm guessing some of y'all have too. But it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, we've seen the kingdom of God come with power. Jesus has risen from the dead. He sent his Holy Spirit to live in everyone who trusts in him. And this Spirit empowers us to do exactly what Jesus commands to choose suffering, rejection, and death for the sake of Jesus and his gospel, to follow him. When we live for self, we hide the gospel. We obscure the true Jesus. But when we trust in his spirit to empower us to live for God, we demonstrate the power of the gospel, and we make clear to those around us who the true Jesus is. I've personally been fortunate to see others embrace Jesus and obey his teachings. So I actually want to share with you some of the stories of folks I know that you and I can follow in these examples. Now, the reality is none of us are going to do all these things I'm going to share, but but this is what others I know have done, and, and God might quicken us to walk with him and follow him in these things. So I've seen friends suffer for Jesus' sake. You know, one of my friends moved to a country with limited resources and even less comforts so she could help people know Jesus. Another friend took a job he didn't enjoy because of the opportunities there to help others know Jesus. I know several who choose to live in the dorms as upperclassmen, giving up money, it costs more, right? Privacy, living off campus with friends so they could help people know Jesus. Not only that, not only they make that choice to make the sacrifices, they give up daily comfort choosing to pursue friendships with those on their floor rather than just staying in their room or hanging out with folks they already know. I know families who sacrifice in their personal budgets. They, 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 what do they say, tighten their belts, right? They choose not to spend money on themselves in other ways so that they have money to go to lunch with coworkers and build relationships. And help them know Jesus. I have another friend who chooses to live with a family member who has a debilitating suffering illness. And he's given up personal opportunities so he can serve them and endure with them for Jesus' sake. I have other friends who risk rejection for Jesus. Caring for someone others have ostracized. Choosing not to agree publicly with a political point of view their friends promote because it may limit their ability to share the gospel with others. Choosing to lovingly share the gospel with a family member who may react strongly and even walk out on them. Humbly and lovingly sharing with a Christian friend when they believe they were not living as God would have them to. And I see friends die to themselves for Jesus' sake laying down a career they're passionate about because God's called them to do something else, choosing to love and encourage someone even when his actions cost them the game. 
friends turning down opportunities like positions of influence in a club or internships or even jobs because that's what they knew God wanted them to do. And I have others who are surrendering dreams for Jesus' sake, like marriage or family or living on a lake or becoming acclaimed in their field. They die to themselves for Jesus' sake. And I have one final example I have. is friends I know that choose to move their family and live in troubled neighborhoods for Jesus' sake. You know, living in the inner city has daily costs, limited resources, facilities that aren't maintained. Like, one, there's a school down the street. I don't know how many kids. But there's one functioning bathroom. I mean, just crazy stuff, you know? Stores don't even exist that we go to every day in the inner city. And it can be dangerous, even life-threatening. Hearing the shots fired at night, pop, 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 pop. Having property stolen, that lack of peace you feel because you don't know that sound you're hearing in the middle of the night is someone trying to break in. And you know what? Parents and friends, they don't understand why you would submit yourself or your kids to these realities. You know, some even choose not to visit you because of where you live. My friends, these friends are following Jesus by faith. I was recently speaking with Justin, who is purposely living in a poor part of town with his wife and young boy. And he told me he was praying recently that God would give him an opportunity to serve him where he was. Later that week, two young men were arguing out in the street. He could hear them. He listened as the disagreement intensified. He could tell it was coming to blows, and he knew God had answered his prayer. So the teenagers, Justin walks outside, right? And the teenagers are going at it. And Justin, he just walks out, stands in between them, looks the aggressor in the eye, and says, hit me. Hit me instead of him. Justin wasn't planning on fighting back. But he was going to take the blows. He was going to take the beatings for Jesus' sake. Why? Why would he do that? Because Justin knows who Jesus really is. And in this case, it totally diffused the situation. You see, when we get obey, when we give up living for ourselves and we live for Jesus, we find true life. The joy, the peace, the satisfaction, it's indescribable. It's hard. It's painful. It wouldn't be called suffering if it wasn't. But it's worth it. He who loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will find it. My friends, because Jesus is Lord, Oshie Hill denied herself and followed him. As a 17-year-old believer, Oshi denied herself, her family, and security for Jesus and his gospel. And she was thrown out. And she was taken in by the local pastor. And not long after, her father came and invited her back home. She later married Lloyd Miller, and they had 11 kids. Imagine that. Ten boys. Woo! Well, four kids into their marriage, she and her husband moved their family to a new city in Kentucky 
because they're building a church, somebody was building a church there. And they, they just upped and moved, trusting God would provide a job and a place to live. So after they helped build the church, they then built their house next door. And then Lloyd, he took a job in the coal mines and went down into dark, dusty, death-creating coal mines day in and day out in order to earn a living to support his family and the work of the church. Years later, Oshi's son, my grandfather in his 20s, yielded his life to Jesus. Both my grandparents denied themselves over and over again for Jesus and for his gospel in my life and many others. And I stand here today because Jesus Christ is Lord. And he enabled my great-grandmother, Oshi, to follow him. My friends, Jesus is asking you, who do you say that I am? Let's pray. Father God, I'm overcome. You are amazing. Jesus, you are Christ the Lord. You gave your all for us to rescue us and give us life. Help us. Help us to put our trust in you. And God, help us. Help us to follow Jesus. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to choose you and find life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.